of a problem if you're not able to eat all of the time like we are now. Right. Like back our ancestors, they wouldn't have necessarily had uh, Starbucks on every corner. Right. And so once they burned through their about 2,000 calories worth of carbs stored, they'd have been in trouble because their brain's super, super glucose hungry and they'd have just like passed out, fallen over. Right. And so we evolved the, the ability to tap into our big old fat stores and turn fats into something that could get across the blood brain barrier, which is ketones in this case. So if you look back at evolution, just as brains started to get bigger uh, in different like animal groups like mammals, that's when ketone metabolism starts to appear yeah. as a real protective mechanism for the brain during fasting. Yeah. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And this week, we're again talking to Dr. Brianna Stubbs, our research lead over at Human. Of course, one of the most popular things that we talk to people about, and also just in internal discussions, is around ketosis. What is a ketogenic diet? How does one do it? What are tools like exogenous ketones, and how are they useful for being in ketosis? And we thought, well, we've touched upon a lot of these subjects through fasting, supplementation and diet, through performance, through therapeutic use. So. Let's just actually just set the fundamentals here. Let's clear up the misconceptions. And I couldn't think of a better partner here to talk about this than Brianna Stubbs. So just a quick overview of her background. She holds a PhD from University of Oxford on ketone metabolism, co-authored a number of the human physiology studies on ketones and ketosis. So, you know, I really consider her one of the best folks in the world in this space. And I would say that I have good grounds to claim that because I've talked to literally everyone in the space. Uh, so I, I think of a good measure. So uh, well, great, to, great to chat. Flatter, flatters me as ever. But I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best and we can, like, as you say, unpack some of the common misconceptions and just try and give people some clarity because I think, like, especially nowadays, people are getting more and more of their information on the internet. It's kind of a confusing place. So it's trying to, trying to point people to good sources of truth and providing, like, good source of truth here ourselves as well. Yeah, and I think a lot of the internet discussion is actually quite poor in quality. So I think, we, I, I want to, I mean, I think, just to give some road signs and where I want this conversation to go, I think let's just define again what a ketogenic diet is. And I think some of the interesting applications around sports performance, I think there's a lot of misconceptions there. We can talk about some of the longevity therapeutic potential around ketosis and also some of the cognition related interesting facts and, and research going on in cognition and ketosis yeah, That's kind was... of the, as a rough road road science and also just how does one get into ketosis through diet and how does one get into ketosis through supplementation i think or, you're or, setting or, or me or an interesting challenge there jeff that could be like four four or five podcasts worth of stuff but i think so. let's just set up fundamentals for everyone yeah. so starting from the top i feel yeah. like i feel like the t term that confuses people the most is the term ketosis itself okay and so i think it'd be really really helpful for our listeners if we define if we define what in the scientific community anyway is is recognized as ketosis so if you look at all of the papers ketosis is normally referring to blood ketone levels so it's ketosis is the state of having elevated beta-hydroxybutyrate and if you have elevated beta-hydroxybutyrate that means that you're burning it for fuel that is very different and distinct from the process of being ketogenic which means that your body is using fat to make ketones. So there's a difference between being in a ketogenic state and being ketosis in ketosis. And really until exogenous ketones came along, they weren't really, um, you couldn't really separate them. So if you were in ketosis, you had to be ketogenic because you had to have made those ketones yourself. But now we're 
advancing in the technology that people can use to get into ketosis, but that just means they have ketones in their blood and can burn ketones as energy. It does not mean that your body has made ketones. And that is one of the things I see tripping people up the most. So they argue that exogenous ketos ketones don't lead to ketosis. Well, they most definitely do because you have three to seven millimoles of ketones in your blood. So not only do you have ketones in the blood, but you can burn those ketones for fuel. And that's part of the reason that we think we see improved performance with um, ketone ester drinks, for example. Right. But that is like completely distinct from the state of being ketogenic. Right. In fact, as we've discussed on this podcast before, if you drink exogenous ketones, that even may slightly slow down for, for a brief period of time, the process of generating your own ketones. So I think that's a really, really important like hook to hang the whole conversation on the difference between producing ketones naturally and having ketones in the blood through a su supplement or a food. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because, again, it's a relatively novel intervention to make this actually happen in human physiology. And I think you, anything just want to reiterate to the listeners out there that in normal physiology, one has to produce ketones by your own body, by your own liver. Yeah. So you're ketogenic and therefore your body is in ketosis. Yes. However, with exogenous ketones like our, you know, our ketone ester drink, human ketone, you can actually not be ketogenic in terms of your liver producing ketones but be in a state of ketosis, yeah. which is typically defined, defined as above 0 0.5 millimoles of BHB. Of, of BHB. Yeah. And just to make sure it's you know super basic, beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB is the main ketone body that our bodies use as a fuel. So yeah, I mean, just to yeah. follow on from that, yeah. people might have heard of beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the one that we measure using the finger prick. Yeah. Then there's also acetoacetate. That's another one that's in the blood, but it's more difficult to measure. So people don't tend to like talk about it so much, but it is important as well. It's less, if you look at the amounts of those two in the blood, beta-hydroxybutyrate tends to be higher than acetoacetate. And then the third ketone that people have heard of is acetone. And that is the one that people measure in the breath. So if you have uh, like a gas meter that you breathe into, that's measuring acetone. Yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's interesting to just tease into the chemistry here. So beta-hydroxybutyrate is a lot more stable than acetoacetate, as you mentioned. Which is part of the reason that most supplements have beta-hydroxybutyrate rather than acetoacetate, because it's more stable and easier right. to formulate. But, you know, in the Krebs cycle, when it actually starts fueling the mitochondria, beta-hydroxybutyrate converts into acetoacetate. So think of, you know, I like to think about BHB as kind of uh, the stable, transportable version of ketones. Yeah, and then sure. right when you actually need it for fuel, BHB converts into acetoacetate and then gets in and breaks on further and, and fuels mitochondria. Yeah, exactly. I was worried you were going to go down a super technical rabbit hole there, but that's like, well, yeah. that's a good level. Yeah, yeah. And I think, well, where does acetone come in then? Acetone happen. the conversion of acetoacetate to acetone happens spontaneously. Uh, like Because it's unstable. Because it's unstable. Right. And then it's excreted in the breath. There are some pretty like in the weeds metabolic pathways where you can argue that acetone might like hop back in and be used in metabolism, but it is, they're not, um, they're not very big pathways. Yeah. Most of it's excreted. Yeah. So those are the three ketone bodies that people typically talk about in terms of physiology. But you, you know, the listeners out there might have heard of something called the raspberry ketones. And that is... Separate altogether. So, can you, can you, yeah, can you I help mean, it, to, to go back to the point you made initially, like if we talk about the chemistry of what's going on, 
if we're talking about chemistry and not physiology, ketone just means uh, carbon double bonded to an oxygen. So um, you can have ketone, chemical, chemically ketone compounds that are not present physiologically inside the body. So raspberry ketone has a key ketone chemistry functional group, but it is not at all structurally similar to the ketones that are made by the body. I don't know whether anyone has ever seen like a drawings of molecules that have like a, a like a hexagon or a sort of a ring of carbons. Raspberry ketones have this like ring group and then the ketone bit sticks off the side as whereas beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate are straight chain. So it's very, very different and it cannot be broken down and used for fuel in the same way. But another reason people get confused is that there's some very preliminary animal data looking at dropping raspberry ketones onto fat cells that makes it look like this compound might affect fat metabolism I mean, in some like way. it looks like it's very poor quality. It's very, I, it's, I, I, I would say that almost people discount that a lot. I mean, I think if you just look at the body of evidence on various compounds, which we do all, all day long, I mean, yeah. it's very, very speculative. Yeah, and I mean... Like the, the dose levels are Yeah, the dose level you'd high, never get at in people. And you would but, never supplement or eat that much. Exactly, right? but you can... The reason that confusion arises is that there's a name ketone in there and it's linked to fat metabolism, right. when in reality... It's structurally nothing uh, at all like. Yeah, think of it as like, a, it's like, think of it as like a raspberry extract. Really, yeah. is what like, it's a plant compound. It's yeah. a plant compound. It has this specific chemical functional right. group that is common to ketone body, right. physiological ketone bodies, um, and it does not act as a fuel right. in the same way as ketone bodies. When you mentioned that, we could dive down to the sort of rabbit hole. I mean, I think that would be an interesting conversation for a different episode. But I think there's very interesting discussion around why ketone metabolism is different from glycolysis, glucose metabolism, how that's different from beta oxidation to fat metabolism, yeah. and how that affects you know metabolites in the Krebs cycle, things like NAD, NADH, yeah. which I also mean, have been interesting across the longevity research in humans. Well, I think um, if there's anyone listening that, um, you know, if there's anything we're talking about that kind of tickles your fancy, please comment or write into podcast at human.com and yeah. let us know because we have these kind of conversations in the office all the time. So yeah. sometimes maybe um, having a fly we can, on the wall yeah, we, we can be, share. We can share, we share some share of the thoughts. You. I mean... I mean, it's just an interesting thread, you know, starting from really like, you know, Sir Hans Krebs back in what, you know, what, 50s, 50s earlier, 60s, yeah. who yep. won the Nobel Prize um, to find what the Krebs cycle really was. I, I think why we're so interested in, in the space of ketosis is that it's so, so fundamental to metabolism, which is the fundamental creation and destruction of energy in our mm. bodies. But I think another thing that, I mean, again, it's maybe going to be a teaser, yeah. maybe we'll talk about it another time, is that um, ketones are not only affecting metabolism and energy production, but also affecting mm. gene expression as well. So there's a ton of, and, um, you know, if we sort of shift slightly to thinking about the ketogenic diet, when people follow this diet for a while, they have um, changes in gene expression that equip them to metabolize fat and ketones better and so now we're kind of interested in understanding that but also understanding how taking right. ketones as a food could also do similar things so right. so the buzzword is epigenetics, epigenetics. Right? like how can your environment affect gene expression and diet but, but, is obviously an really important part of the environment yeah, which i think is a perfect segue so okay so ketosis ketogenesis different concepts Raspberry uh, ketones, not a physiological ketone. Right. So how does one get into ketosis or get into ketogenic state? So obviously the most fundamental way to do that is eating a ketogenic diet. Well, actually, I'd argue that the most fundamental way to do fasting. it would be fasting. Yeah. So this is all of the old studies. Okay, like, let's start with fasting first. Yeah, let's right. start with fasting yeah. first. I mean, I uh, always like to look back at the studies that were done in the 50s, 60s by a mm. scientist called George Cahill. And yes. it's kind of cool because back then you could get ethical approval to just 
starve people yeah. for days and days and days on end. Um, there was actually one guy who he um, put himself on a fast at last over year. Over 360 what, yeah, some like days. a year long. And so but this was an obese man who yeah. was like 400 pounds and over a year. Things, yeah. He had like multivitamins injected. and water as well, well salt tablets. Anyway, right. we're getting super yeah. sidetracked. But what these studies done on people just fasting for medical reasons were what gave us our early insight into natural ketone production. And so um, they saw that it takes maybe up to 40, 30 to 40 days for ketone levels to reach a plateau and they rise slowly over that time. I mean, within How many days, uh, I think the whole study was 40 days. Right, long. right. The KO study is 40 days long. Yeah. But the plateau, the plateau I... was maybe a little early. I think it was like 30, yeah. 25. Five to thirty days. The it's plateau sort of, for ketones is around you know ten fifteen days. That early. Yeah. And the peak, uh, the plateau tends to be around six about millimole. six millimolar, yeah. which is interesting because it shows that the body has like a natural level of ketones that it kind of maxes out at. I kind of like to compare it a little bit to our blood glucose levels. So I know Americans work in milligrams per deciliter, but in Europe we work in millimolar, right. and the range for glucose is about four between 3.5 to 5 millimoles right. fasted and actually so ketones are kind of at a similar level once you reach that natural plateau mm. and so the whole point is that the body has you know a feedback mechanism to stop ketones getting too high uh, as we see in uh, uncontrolled diabetes right. so if you fast for a prolonged period of time your carbohydrate stores in your liver and your muscles are completely depleted and that means that the brain is the energy supply of the brain is at risk because the brain really, really needs glucose to keep going. And we all know that feeling mid afternoon when you're kind of like in between lunch and dinner and you have something sugary, it picks you back up and it keeps you alert. And that's because your brain needs that glucose to function. Mm-hmm. Um, fat is not able to cross into the blood brain barrier and, yeah, and be made. Fatty acids are really big molecules. Doesn't transfer across. No. So that's kind of a problem if you're not able to eat all of the time, like we are now, right. like back our ancestors, they wouldn't have necessarily had uh, Starbucks on every corner. Right. And so once they'd burned through their about 2000 calories worth of carbs stored, they'd have been in trouble because their brains super, super glucose hungry and they'd have just like passed out, fallen over. Right. And so we evolved the, the ability to, tap into our big old fat stores and turn fats into something that could get across the blood brain barrier which is ketones in this case so if you look back at evolution just as brains started to get bigger uh, in different like animal groups like mammals that's when ketone metabolism starts to appear yeah. as a real protective mechanism for the brain during fasting yeah i think that was something that i've actually been reading a lot about and we're one of the best animals at being ketogenic in the sense that we act, our brains are actually a significant portion of energy metabolism. 20%. Yeah. And, and, you know, smaller brain animals like, like bears, for example, are hibernating for long periods of time, but their uh, gluconeogenesis, the conversion of fat or protein into glucose is enough to fuel the brain to not have to rely on ketones as much. So humans, because we have so much energy demand, our bodies can't convert enough fat we're mainly protein into glucose and therefore like we really needed to you know accelerate the level of ketones that our bodies can produce yeah. so i mean yeah fasting is the i might have opened up a different can of worms there of how glucose can yeah be converted. we can we can go into that one another time but i think um but but i think the the, the summary is that you know 
fats can convert into ketones and that's the main that's 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 ketosis and then the most the most rapid way to do it is just not to eat anything because that's the quickest way to deplete yourself of carbohydrate right. um, and once you're depleted of carbohydrate that's when your body is forced to revert into using ketones as fuel yeah and then you know, another key point um, in the process is the absence of insulin so if you're not eating anything at all, insulin is released in response to a meal. So if you're not eating, then you don't trigger any insulin right. release. And that kind of segues us nicely onto the ketogenic diet right. because, you know, we can go into a little bit more there. But the main aim of the diet is to minimize eating foods that trigger insulin release, carbohydrate. So um, you can facilitate ketone production. You don't have to fast altogether. You right. can still eat calories, but no or very few insulin triggering calories right i mean let's talk about some of the subjective effects around fasting just to give a sense i mean i think some of the evolutionary which uh, explanations which are somewhat you know hand wavy in, in, in sort of storytelling is the notion that one should be more efficient and effective if they're in a starvation state if one gets less effective well they'll, they'll starve and, and become stupid so that matches a lot of the anecdotal stories around where you know plato had his students fast before entering the academy a lot of religious figures fasted to, to get insight into the how the world and how, how the universe w was created so there's interesting subjective maybe you know accounts around how this the notion of fasting jumpstarts ketosis, which might explain some of the interesting states that humans have gone through in the past. And I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna really like carry on a little way further down the rabbit hole, caloric right. restriction and fasting is linked to longevity, especially. I mean, clearly in animal models, but right. also anecdotally in humans who regularly fast or go on hunger strike right. for religious reasons, they just live longer, and that could be because of the genetic effects of, of calorie restriction and ketosis. Right. And I think that's where some of the interesting research moving forward will be is the benefits of caloric restriction from ketosis is there's, there's two that, separate things, which, yeah. which is, I think, uh, Subtle. which is, which is, uh, which I believe is still open science. Um, so let's talk about a ketogenic diet. You know, I, I guess ketogenic diets really came into play as a way to treat drug-resistant epilepsy. Yeah, no, that's about in the early 1900s. Right, I, I'm I mean, just wondering, if did people just try to eat? So I guess there's been some discussion about Inuit tribes yeah, and also keto, just given like they only could have access to like heavy protein and heavy fats and not a lot of carbohydrates. And store, anecdotally, they would eat the fatty cuts of meat and give the lean meat to the, the sled dogs. Interesting. But I think actually, I mean, whilst the ketogenic diet you know, it's broadly accepted that in the early 1900s, that's when it started being used for epilepsy. I think that's there when is, it's like formally kind of studied. Yeah, formally yeah. studied. But, uh, you know, there's, I think it was Hippocrates that said to um, eat while you're sick is to feed your sickness. So fasting and, you know, like using, mm. tri triggering ketosis has right. always had like a link into disease. Right. But yeah, I think specifically for the ketogenic diet. Yeah. Well, and then William Banting as well in, I think that was in the 1800s. Mm. He used a... Um, I mean, he talks about it in much... This is South Africa. Uh, no, he is not in South Africa. He was a British undertaker and he was really overweight. Oh. And he'd been, uh, he worked with his physician. He'd been, he, I, I identify a bit with his story because his doctor had been trying to help him lose weight to treat his gout. And he had had him rowing up and down the Thames. <laughs> uh, obviously being a rower kind of identified yeah. with that a little bit. But he, um, then his doctor was like, well, why don't you cut out all starchy foods and stop drinking beer and things like that and he lost a ton of weight on this very very low carbohydrate diet mm. um the name the reason you said south africa is because now uh, there's a big movement of people following a low carbohydrate diet in south africa they and they call it the banting diet okay. using his name okay but um yeah he was another 
early um, adopter, a very early adopter of the ketogenic diet, right. he published a pamphlet that was called A Letter on Corpulence. Um, that's kind of funny to, <laughs> funny to read. historical uh, side factoid. But I guess it is proper to say that studied in clinics, studied clinically. In the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, it was originally designed for drug uh, treating drug-resistant epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And these diets, what was the macro ratio? Well, I mean, as much fat as possible. So, right. I mean, typically under 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. I mean, you know, ideally minimum, maximum under 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, 80 to 85% of the energy coming from fat, mo low to moderate protein, right. not a high protein diet and a very, very low in carbohydrate. Right. Which I, I want to underline there. So most people that I talk to that talk about eating a ketogenic diet are really eating sort of an Atkins style diet. And I think it's, it's just like distinguish between what a low carb diet is, what an Atkins style diet is, and what a ketogenic diet is. Yeah. Um, do you want to take a stab at it? Well, I think really the ultimate end point of a ketogenic diet is that it triggers ketone production. Mm -hmm. That's in the name. So, I mean, without wanting to confuse people, if you're doing a lot of physical activity, you might be able to eat 60 grams of carbohydrate a day and still be in ketosis. Right. But some other people may have to eat l much less carbohydrates, like zero, like zero right. even, in order to be in ketosis. Right. So if we're taking like the highest level definition, a ketogenic diet is one that triggers ketone production in you, you right. as an individual. Um, a low carbohydrate diet, I mean, in the Western com community, we eat quite a lot of carbohydrate. And so there's no like formal definition, but often around like 125, 100 grams of carbohydrate can be considered low. Right. Um, typically for putting, clinically putting people on a ketogenic diet, um, like a formal program, people recommend starting at 50 grams for a typical ketogenic diet. Right. So I think if we were broadly looking to define like a target level of carbohydrate for it to be ketogenic, yeah. 50 would be an interesting place to yeah, start. Yeah, I mean, can you give a sense of how much carbohydrate that is? I mean, I was like, I mean, I've been eating it's very, like very strictly keto. An apple. Right, it's like 20, 20 to 25 is, grams. Right, right. Yeah. So like basically when people say, oh, 100 grams, like, oh, is that a lot, not a little? It's like, yeah, like a banana or like a like an ounce of yep. blueberries, like 20, 21 grams of carbs. And the thing is, carbohydrates in not only in things that you'd expect it to be in, but hidden in sauces right. and yeah. hidden in, um, you know, vegetables even. Though you have to be careful about which different types of vegetables you choose and how much of them you're eating. You know, to really follow a ketogenic diet and keep your carbohydrate intake under 50 grams a day, it takes a lot of discipline. And, yes. most, and I think the point you were making is that most people... Under... I think yeah, I think most people are un I don't know, I don't want to say people are undisciplined, but I think it's, it's surprising how many carbs are in sauces or things that you don't expect. And vegetables as well. And vegetables. And then two, people overweight protein. And I think that's where I was trying to get to with the difference between Atkins, low carb diets with a ketogenic yeah. diet. So I oftentimes um people will say, you know, I'm eating keto, I'm eating all this steak and meat and pork and fish, and it's like cool, but you're probably not elevating your ketone levels that much because you're eating too much protein. And as we discussed and highlighted a little bit before was that protein converts into glucose through gluconeogenesis. Yeah, I would like to like put a cautionary note on, on this and maybe we could discuss this yeah. on another podcast because I think there's a lot of, um, a lot, also a lot of fear of protein in on the keto scene. And I think it's, I think the reality is a midline between, midway between people who overeat protein and trigger gluconeogenesis and right. people who are afraid of protein and don't consume enough right. because 
without wanting to go too much into the weeds, protein uh, has an interesting effect on glucagon rather than just insulin. So it Mm. affects hormones differently to carbohydrates. So Mm. protein doesn't always equal gluconeogenesis consumed at the right kind of amount. So right. it's um it's nuanced. It's right. nuanced. I think um we're I think what we're trying to say here is protein is definitely a consideration, but and it needs to be uh, modulated. Right. But uh, you can't overeat protein and necess- and stay in ketosis. But you definitely need to have some protein in the diet and yeah to maintain vary. lean muscle mass yeah. etc. And I think the hard part is getting enough fat content. So as you're saying, eighty to eighty five percent of your calories from fat. Yeah. So just just think about that for a second. That is, I mean, unless you're like one needs to be adding fat sources. So I can speak to this in, in, in experience. So I've been eating very very strict keto for the last six seven weeks, and and it's backed by also just doing finger sticks twice a day. So I'm measuring my blood ketones and confirming that I'm between one to three millimolar uh, ketones, and in my fridge. You know, one, I went from eating out a lot because, you know, it's easier and it's more convenient to cooking a lot. Like I basically have went from essentially virtually eating every single meal out to uh, essentially cooking every single meal. What do you cook? What's, what's a good example? Uh, so last night for dinner, um, I had a lot of, you know, I, I sauteed some garlic and onions boiled it down in olive oil and butter, and then had uh, six eggs and a six egg omelet and a, and, a, and a plate like a half a block of blue cheese. Nice. Like a lot of blue cheese and just nice. melted it down, which is quite good. Um, oftentimes I'll also just cook down, you know, like those like Costco bag sizes or Safeway size bag of like spinach. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of butter. Garlic. Olive oil. <laughs> and like you just like compress down like, a whole bag of, you know, this would have been like a super mega salad. It just shrinks down into a, a, a nice little bowl of, of, of steamed, you know, oily greens. And I think it's interesting just to highlight um, that you're getting really good micronutrients yes. through making sure that you eat like leafy vegetables. And yeah. so sometimes when people start a ketogenic diet, they end up with deficiencies because they change their diet so radically right. and they don't necessarily make sure they're having a varied enough diet to get right. in nutrient sources that you need to stay healthy so i mean um to go back to the very very top it takes a lot of thought to do a ketogenic right. diet well and i know that some of the leading researchers in the field jeff folek and stephen finney they talk their buzzword is a well-formulated ketogenic right. diet and you know whilst i feel like it, it kind of um it gives them permission to point at anyone that gets a negative result and say, well, maybe your diet wasn't well formulated. They yeah. do raise the interesting point that that it is very practical and healthful so long as it is has got the right components right. in it, whether, you know, calories, micronutrients, enough fat, like things like that. There, there are, There's an art to it. Right. And I think that's one thing that I think a lot of people miss is that, oh, you eat keto, that means you don't eat any vegetables. It's like, well, don't eat the starchy vegetables. Like, I'm not eating potatoes, fries... Not, you know, not eating beans, um, but I am eating, you know, a lot of leafy vegetables, which have fiber, which don't count as net carbs because they don't break down into glucose. Mm. Your body sort of flushes them out. And I imagine you're adding a lot of salt to things as well, because it, eating keto can change the way that your kidneys right. are handling fluids and things right. like that as well. Yeah. So, and then I think some of the interesting things, like instead of snacking on, um, on chips or something, I'll snack on pork rinds or like these, uh, 
these like fluffed up uh, cheese things. Oh yeah, those like, are good. Like the frozen cheese. Like moon cheese type moon things. Moon cheese type yeah. things. Those are uh, moon cheese and pork rinds are, are great go-to snacks. And you know, like um, salami, sausage and things. Yeah, like a lot that. of cheese. I think it's a lot of cheese. I, and oftentimes I'll just like squirt in some MCT oil. Into your coffee. I'm not drinking any caffeine oh, yeah, anymore, course. but that's another, another, you can talk about another caffeine <laughs> as another discussion, but yeah. So uh, yeah, before, through when I converted from a mixed diet to a ketogenic diet, yeah, a lot of, you know, heavy whipping cream, like probably like 500, 600 calories of heavy whipping cream with like probably another 200 calories of like MCT oil in like cold brew would start off my day. Yeah. So you're making a very conscious effort to make sure that your fat content is high. Yeah. Cause I think it's like, it's like, and I think the first couple, first five days it felt weird. Cause like your stomach is just not used to eating that much fat. Again, like 80, 85% fat is like nuts. Like, when I'm like eating steak, I used to like throw away the fatty bits, right? I eat those. I bits. like eat the fat bits, like, like especially slab of butter on the top, because otherwise it is lots of protein. A lot of protein. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think um, one can go to this kind of extreme. I don't think it's that extreme anymore. I think I'm pretty adapted to it. Um, a lot of people find it impractical, though. Yeah, and but it's, it's th- you have to take a lot of thought. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when you think about um, the origins of the diet in therapeutic use, especially in children, it can be very difficult to get people, uh, children, to adhere to that sort of thing. And people are interested in the diet for Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases, mm-hmm. and those people also might have more trouble adhering. So there are limitations to to the diet. Um, Broadly speaking, yeah, and which brings I, us on to exogenous. Well, uh, but, nice but even before that, I think it is an important point to raise. I think, you know, I, 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 you know, we we fast, and then I've been eating keto for the last six, seven weeks. But I wouldn't say that hey, everyone in the world should be eating keto all the time. And I think that's an important notion because I think a lot of people in the keto community are, you know, they get too dogmatic either way, right? And I think some of the limitations. Or some of the concerns that I have is that, you know, I've been doing monthly blood draws to make sure my blood lipids, uh, inflammation, insulin, you know, all of those are moving the right way as possible. And oftentimes, you know, one, a lot of people see elevated LDL cholesterol levels, which may or may not be clinically relevant, you know, given the, some of the emerging you know, research out there. But what does seem to be clinically relevant is your HDL levels and your triglyceride levels. So I think make sure that you're, you track your lipids and your biomarkers if you start doing kind of yeah. different diets. Because everyone's body responds differently. Um, and as you say, it's not necessarily the best the best diet for everyone. And also it's not necessarily the best diet for everyone all of the time. Right. So um, recently Peter Attia updated his blog post on ketosis and he was saying how he felt like it had been a really good reset period for right. him to follow it really strictly for a couple of years. And then after that he was able to reintroduce carbohydrate and right. felt better with more le- on less of a ke- strong strict ketogenic right. diet so i mean i think um i think it's a an interesting tool and it will work for people in certain contexts but it's it's not necessarily for everyone right and i think i want to give you know airtime for you know the people from the you know that are you know excited about carb carb heavy diets right like there's also just good longevity diet longevity data around you know diets that are just like 100% carb, like super low, super low fat, right? So I think there is multiple ways 
to be healthy good to be healthy right like metabolism is complicated i think you're just hitting different pathways through different mechanisms well you kind of hit an interesting point there i think actually what the really bad diet is one that's high in carbs and high in fat together that's like the typical western diet and that's that's not great news yeah but if you have you know really super high carb diet low fat diet that can work really well and if you have a low carb high fat diet that also can work really really well as well and you know there's nuance to it you can do ketogenic diets cyclically Right. Uh, you can fast for you know five days a month. Right. There's there's ways of using dr- dropping in and out of these things that we're begin- beginning to understand now, and so it doesn't it doesn't have to be absolute. Right. Um, Absolutely, and I think that will be the future. And I think we've talked about that you know for athletic training, for physical performance training, that one will have periodized times where you focus on you know getting your body keto adapted and then cycling out of it. Because I know that you know for you know a lot of heavy lifting you know anaerobic type exercises versus endurance aerobic exercises you need glucose yeah so i mean right so i think there's like a balance like there's no just golden you know magic thing that solves everything for for everyone everyone. of course not right so i think i i i think it is important that we actually talk about the limitations and constraints for all types of diets especially keto yeah i mean so to talk look at the data to bring the science lens onto it uh, as yet the low carb ketogenic diet has has failed to show an outstanding benefit in terms of performance so i mean where we're at is we understand that people that follow this diet do have much much higher levels of fat oxidation than people who follow a normal mixed diet right and that's been shown it's interesting there's a lot of debate in this field and it gets quite uh emotionally fraught let's just say but um some people have found that these changes can happen kind of quickly within a week of following the diet. Um, and normally if you measure performance after a week or so, there's normally a, a drop off in performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people who are pro low carb diets say that this is because you've not had enough time to adapt. Keto adaptation yeah, takes like which, six months which can or take, a year. Which can take a very long time. Right. And there's not been really, there's a study that's looked at just the metabolism of these athletes, but they didn't have any performance data. So mm-hmm. really we're relying a lot on anecdote here. Um, and it looks to be from the data that there, that there is change, that there are changes in metabolism, unclear as yet how that affects super long distance performance, but it does look like there's no clear benefit at the sort of distances that are being competed in, you know, marathon standard, right. you know, by standard athletes so it's sort of it one thing i suppose that is striking is that um in terms of endurance anyway there's often not a decrement um really you know some times people seem to lose their top end power so if you're in a sport where you might need to sprint for the finish like most races let's just say you might be a little compromised by a ketogenic diet but you know you could still produce as much power for you know a 100 kilometer time trial and things like that no no difference so that's like a you know kind of net interesting slash positive equivalency but the top end power that is important for people who are competitive and at the moment it looks like there's no there's no clear answer yet and does look from the data like in a lot of people on that diet for a short amount of time that their power suffers and you know there's a lot of anecdote out there of people who feel like they feel fine so i mean i don't want to like rub anyone in the community up the wrong way so i think the way to think about it is that there's really two dimensions that people are talking about one dimension is just like strict performance. I want to be an Olympic gold medalist. I want to be the best person, you know, best possible performance. And oftentimes that is contradictory or at least orthogonal to longevity, metabolic flexibility. There's more and more data suggesting that, yeah, if you're 
pushing your body to be a champion, that's not probably not best for you to like live long. No, I mean, right? you get so there's trade -offs. a big heart and people just drop dead. And... Right, so there's trade-offs. And I think that I would say that in training or from a lifestyle perspective, ketogenic, you know, ketosis seems to be better for the longevity uh, maintenance but where in strict performance, you want all possible fuels at the same time, which includes glucose. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, you might include um, periods of like training in a ketogenic state or right. a fasted state to boost your fat metabolism. Right. But um, it does look, you know, glycolysis and that anaerobic energy production is as important. It's important. It's super important. It, it just part like... Yeah, it just it's it's a fuel reserve and a metabolic pathway that's a very efficient for what it does. But I mean, this is kind of um, accounting for the fact that typically these studies have been of people using a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet, right. and so that they either have one or the other. And so exogenous ketones are kind of interesting because you can be in ketosis, not be ketogenic, have full carbohydrate stores and also ketones on top, which is different again so we've got your like yep. typical athlete who fuels with carbohydrate mainly they'll be like carbohydrate loading before a race and taking on carbohydrate you can take on the recommended amount is 60 grams an hour that's quite a lot that's a couple of um gels right. an hour so it's you know pretty pretty high carbohydrate intake um or you can be a low carbohydrate athlete a keto athlete and the you know anecdotally these guys are doing the you know multi-day long endurance runs and they don't have to eat all of these goo shots and part of the reason there is you know it upsets stomach but right. they, they're fueling on super super low gi carbs maybe or fats nut butters um you know like fatty shakes things like that or and now you've got an athlete that can have full carbohydrate stores and also supplement with ketones on top of that which is completely different metabolic state because it's not just carbs or just fat and ketones, it's all three fuel yeah, sources. and that was a lot of your PhD work over at Oxford, the notion of a ketone ester drink. So, and, and that's what we actually introduced to the world. So, you, you know, not to overly promote our own products here, but that's what we're super excited about and super knowledgeable of this, this space. I mean, we've really looked at all pathways to get to this point of having exogenous ketone ester that really puts human physiology in a novel state. It's As totally you mentioned, novel. It's, you have you can be in ketosis, not be ketogenic, have full carb reserves, have very, very high ketone levels. And that's why, sort of a reference, when you want to win races, you want all fuels, you know, replete fuels in all, in all possible ways. So, I mean, say you, you raise your ketone levels with a drink before you go and do a marathon. Right. And say say you're like going to break the world record you're on for two hours. Say right. you have a ketone drink beforehand along with your normal carbohydrate. Right. Your body then has ketones to burn right. and it burns those in preference to the carbohydrate early on. Right. But then as you get like an hour in, you've uh, you've burnt through the ketones. If you don't take another drink, you're then just like on carbs, right. which is great as you try and start to ramp up that intensity right. towards the end. Exactly. And that, that does not occur naturally. No. I mean, just, yeah, one, one cannot diet or exercise into that kind of physiological state. No, you have to consume right. ketones. So before we dive too much into the ketone ester itself, let's talk about all the different forms and supplements that people are taking today to enhance ketosis or enhance their ketone levels. So I would say that the, there's three broad categories and, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. I would say that there's um, a category of MCT oils. You might have heard about MCT oils from Bulletproof Coffee or Fat Coffee for coconut one. Coconut oil. Coconut oil. 
And that's one category. So basically, you know, medium chain triglycerides or fats that are readily, you know, you know, that can convert into ketones. And then you have more proper exogenous ketones and they're in two main categories. First category is ketone salts. Uh, they have their limitations. And then there's the last category that we're really excited about bringing to the world, which is a ketone ester. Mm -hmm. These are the three main uh, ketone categories. So, I mean, just to flesh it out a little bit more, um, when we've given people MCTs, you see, it depends on how much you give people, and right. there are limits there because, um, especially to people that haven't taken them before, dosing up on MCTs kind of rapidly can cause you GI upset. Yeah, which we've so, seen in the office yeah. when we're doing some, you know, you know, small case studies. I know actually Zill, right? It was Zill. You were you were kind of knocked out when he had an MCT. Yeah. C8 caprylic acid shot. So. Um, <laughs> You take those and you might get a blood ketone raise of between 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, kind of like a small, modest bump in ketone levels. Mm -hmm. uh, then the salts, I mean, those are kind of being, they've really taken off recently. People are using them and often get between 0.5 to 1 millimoles. But interestingly enough, all of the data that's coming out around sport performance and around um, therapeutic uses is, uh, you know, a bit more... Mm. There's no improvement in performance, let's just say, with ketone salts versus ketone esters. I mean, and I would say, I mean, I would even go strongly and say that they make you perform worse. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that is what the paper, that is what all the literature published. It looks like they're, because potentially it's a fluid shift thing, because they're very concentrated and, yeah. and then frequently reported, again, gastrointestinal right. distress. With yeah, I mean, but I think the data is what the data is. I mean, people are performing worse on ketone salts which is unfortunate because a lot of the marketing around ketone sauce is making people a bit better. And it's like, uh, you're, you're selling something that's making people worse and like they should just be drinking water, right? Yeah, I, don't, I think the, like probably the headline is that the elevations in ketones are so small that they're unlikely to be super physiologically relevant right. and the co-delivery of mineral ions could well be the thing that's negatively impacting right. performance. Yeah, so one of the things that's kind of not, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, at least, or maybe a combination of frustrating and amusing is that all the literature that you might have seen out there about how ketones improve performance is, is actually related to the work at Oxford and, and some of the work that you were involved with, which is relating to the ketone ester. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about a little bit about how the ketone ester works and why it's different from MCT oils, which is kind of a, a food supplement version and ketone salts, which is like a 1950s technology that hasn't really panned out. Mm -hmm. Why is the ketone ester so interesting? So the ketone ester contains just pure ketone, ketone precursor. There's no um, mineral load with the ketone ester. Um, an ester just means that the two parts, the two ketone parts are joined by what's called an ester bond. But we eat esters in our diet all of the time. They're things that um, give our food smell often. Mm -hmm. So our guts are like really well designed to like break apart these two ketone uh, entities and they're absorbed really very quickly and achieve very significant uh, boosts in blood ketone levels. I mean, maybe upwards of three millimoles. I took it the other week and got to seven millimoles. So it's um, a much, much bigger rise in ketones, much, much quicker than it's like with five or ten stronger than yeah, ketone it's, salts. It's and very MCT. strong and there's no mineral load, it's very easily absorbed. And right. um, because this compound that I worked on in Oxford, we've been refining it over a long period of time there's broadly no tolerability issues at the doses that we're giving. Right. Yeah, that's cool. So I think, I mean, 
in in a, in a, in a nutshell, then I, I would say that the downsides are that it's still relatively expensive. We're working on bringing like the cost down as quickly as we can, and it tastes kind of crazy. <laughs> but other than that, like cost and taste, um, it's five to ten x more potent than MCTs and ketone salts. Um, and I think the coolest part is there's actually a robust body of data showing that it enhances and improves athletic performance yeah. in the ways that. Um, are relevant. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the the discussion around ketosis generally it focuses on the whole area and it doesn't distinguish between firstly exogenous and endogenous ketosis, which is an important point. And then often it doesn't tease much into what level is needed to get the desired effect. Right. Um, so it just lumps everything. Like together. I think a lot of cycling studies, if people are up there like five six millimolar. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that's what you well need. i think it, i think they would be at five six more and more if they were rest during exercise it's more like three right, right so right. you have to give more because the body's burning it yeah. so but we we are starting to get a really deep understanding of how to to give ketone esters alongside carbs and yeah for as a, a lot of populations now everything. you know with military with you know with cyclists with other types of sports i mean i think we're just building a lot of domain expertise here as we're just working with people and professionals, really world-class people in, in all yeah. sorts of uh, endeavors. Yeah. I think um, it has been one of the biggest challenges, though, is like educating people and getting people to discriminate between diet and supplements and foods and all of these. You know, there's a lot of nuance there. And yep. so education is something that we're taking really, really seriously moving forward. Yeah. And I think a lot of the research also is just exciting. So I think, you know, something that you teased upon earlier in this conversation was that it's not just, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate is not just the metabolic substrate, not just the fuel for the Krebs cycle. It also has potential interesting signaling effects for things associated with longevity, you know, things with inflammation. Yeah. There's a uh, lot of work to be done and um, it's cool to have a tool as powerful as the ketone ester that allows us to separate ketogenesis and low carbohydrate restriction from ketosis and the effects of beta hydroxybutyrate and ketones themselves and we're excited to see where that goes in the future yeah so i mean i think you know i think that's like why i think one of the interesting ways we talk about you know ketones and ketone esters that we really think of as a fourth macronutrient right so a lot of the ketogenic diet studies essentially conflate high fat diet plus presence of ketones and there might be some downsides or trade-offs between that kind of state where with a, uh, a ketone ester diet you can t- you can break apart the nest the need to eat high fat and yeah. have ketones in yeah it's system. interesting so i was reading a paper recently and it talked about um how the mitochondria which is the energy producing right. part of our cells how they make energy um when you're on a ketogenic diet right. and there are some things that improve the you know in my health of the mitochondria and some things that make it a little less efficient right. but we don't know yet what would happen if it's like if you're not eating that high fat diet whether you just put ketones in and we've seen in um, animal isolated rat heart that there's an improvement in efficiency of that muscle when you just give it ketones that's not a diet so we wonder whether um just supplementing with ketones would give you the improvements in efficiency without the negative effects of the high fat diet in terms of which is why i think that's like opens up an interesting possibility right i think can you get the benefits without the drawbacks yeah i mean i mean i think it's early yeah. but i think what is there is that it's very very safe low side effect profile it is 
a food stuff, a food component, not a supplement, not a drug. This is a food, and it really, I think, serves as a fourth macronutrient. And it's, you know, and it allows people who are on a ketogenic diet to give themselves a boost in ketones, which might help them adhere to the diet. And it also allows athletes or people that are not following a ketogenic diet for performance reasons to have this extra fuel source and maximize fuelability during exercise. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was going to kind of wrap up there, but I think you open up an interesting point before we wrap up here, which is that a lot of our early customers are using it as an adjunct to do longer fasts because actually, you know, you actually published this paper, um, ketone ester drinks reduce ghrelin, reduces appetite. And this is not insulinogenic. It isn't, uh, um, so it's like a very, it's like one of the perfect crutches if one needs a crutch to extend a long day, a longer fast. Yeah, sure. Yeah. A lot of exciting data. Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating space, and I think, I think we're both just super excited to play a, a small role in you know further understanding it and further educating people. Yeah, lots to do. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, as we wrap up here, this is helpful to kind of clarify a lot of the misconceptions or just nuances within ketosis, ketogenesis, ketogenic diets. Um, if there's any areas that we tease upon that we didn't have enough time to dive deeply into just send us a note um we're both on twitter brianna's at brianna stubbs i'm at jeffrey Wu. but also just email us uh, podcast at human.com uh we love i think we all read every single one of your comments we love them and if you want to do an extra favor and show us some extra love give us a five-star review or whatever star review that we deserve uh send us a screenshot of that um uh, to, to zill at podcast.human.com and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, which is our acute nootropic product. Uh, that's all for now. Great uh, to chat again. Great to chat and see you guys next week. Have a good one.